Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Piers Morgan Uncensored. From here, the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Florida. This is the home of Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, the man that many think could be the next president of the United States. Ron DeSantis will soon deliver his State of the State address. He's set to outline his agenda and highlight his possible 2024 presidential campaign. DeSantis has an even bigger lead, more than 20 points in the survey that we showed you just yesterday. The news comes as DeSantis' top Republican rival, former President Trump, faces new legal trouble. I just spent more than an hour with the governor, and we covered a wide range of issues from Ukraine. I was a bit surprised, I think some people were, that you seem to be almost dismissing it no, as a kind of that's not true. A kind of local dispute. It's time working at Guantanamo Bay. You authorize the use of force feeding some not of the, yeah, that's not the detainees who were on hunger strike. I was a junior officer. I didn't have authority to authorize anything. And in Iraq, we could defeat them on the battlefield without even blinking an eye. To how he proposed to his wife. We were out on the balcony and just kind of dropped to the knee and, and did? asked did, knee? Oh yeah, of course. So of you course. took the knee, Governor. Yeah, yeah, we did. That's the only time I take a knee is for that one. <laughs> What he really thinks of Donald Trump. You made a fatal error in your relationship with What's that? Donald Trump. You got too popular. <laughs> and of course, the burning question everybody wants to know the answer to. Is he gonna run? You think you can beat Biden? I think so. So you're running then. So here it is, me one-on-one -on -one with Governor Ron DeSantis in the governor's mansion. Governor, well, first of all, thank you very much indeed. Welcome to the free state of Florida. I've come all the way from London for this. So, uh, you know, that's because London, like most cities in the world right now and most countries in the world, they're all beginning to ask the same question. Who's this guy, Ron DeSantis? Are you well, aware of this? I am, and uh, we've been able to see a little bit of that. And look, I have the privilege of being the governor of one of the most dynamic jurisdictions in the world right now. If you look over the last uh, four or five years, the amount of people that have decided to move uh, to Florida, the, just visit Florida, or even just look to Florida for inspiration has been unlike anything we've seen in the state's history. So uh, we've got a lot of tremendous people here. We've got a lot going on that's positive, and we're not afraid to lead the way. I want to start with a positive quote, which you're going to really like, and then move on to some negatives that other people have said. So sure. it's going to start well, this, OK? This is from a guy called Richard Littlejohn. He, he writes for the Daily Mail uh, newspaper in the UK, also a Florida resident for many decades. And he's a friend of mine. 
And he wrote this recently. DeSantis is living proof that when conservatives govern as conviction conservatives, committed to freedom, light regulation, low taxes, strong borders and proper policing, and don't crumble in the face of militant wokery, voters lap it up. What's your response to that first? Well, Is look, that a good categorization I mean, of I, why you think you've been successful? I think all that's true. Um, I think, you know, you just think of the environment. We've done more on conservation for our Everglades, but this is like things that really matter to people. I'm not trying to control their lives. I'm just trying to make the environment better. Crime, we're law and order. We are not dealing with letting criminals out or going soft. I actually removed a Soros-backed prosecutor from Tampa who said he wasn't going to follow the law. Uh, COVID, we made sure that we protected people's freedoms. People knew they could come here and do well. And yes, we have no income tax. We have one of the lowest per capita tax burdens in the country, lowest per capita debt burdens in the country, and the largest budget surplus in the history of the state. We have more people, significantly more people employed today than we did pre-COVID. A lot of the lockdown states still haven't gotten back to their pre-COVID employment levels. And so I think what we've done has worked, and I think people have responded positively. All this has made you very popular in Florida. I mean, just anecdotally, being here for a few days, I've been completely stunned, frankly, <laughs> by the amount of adulation you get from Floridians. But as your star has risen, as you know, out have come the knives. This is from Vanity Fair. They said you're a wannabe autocrat, already governed the Sunshine State like a banana republic. You're the Genghis Khan of social issues, <laughs> using every opportunity to target and demonize groups that have already been targeted and demonized throughout history. Um, Trevor Noah called you an ignorant racist. Stephen Colbert, a gaping bleep. Seth Meyer said you were cruel, sadistic, stupid, repulsive, ghoulish. When you see this kind of hatred, what it says to me as a journalist who's covered a lot of presidential runs and political manoeuvrings is that it means that people are getting a bit worried about you. I think it's right. I think, I think uh, they see me over the target. I'm obviously coming at it from a different perspective than they like to see. Those are all people on the, on the left and sometimes far left. Um, but here's the thing. I think the reason why I won the biggest landslide in the history of Florida for, for governor's race is because that criticism is so far removed from the reality. There's legitimate things we can criticize everybody for, including me. But when you start talking about being an autocrat, all I do is I look at my constitutional powers and I govern in a way to advance the, the principles that I believe in. The criticism really falls on deaf ears. And I got it from all quarters for the whole time I was governor. I mean, right. you know, during COVID, I was the number one governor being attacked. People I criticized here. you. There you go. And I that's discovered fine. today, I checked what I tweeted about you historically. There you go. And I found a tweet, I think in 2021, where it looked like Florida's record was not going to be good on COVID because you've been one of the first people in America, certainly, to bring back freedoms for people. And I was quite scathing. I said, this guy's going to have blood on his hands. Actually, it, it didn't turn out that way. Actually, you were very bold in a lot of the stuff you were doing, bolder than many other governors. And it turned out in, in many areas you were vindicated. Well, here's the thing. Uh, excess mortality, uh, lowest in the, in the Sun Belt, even lower than New York and California for all-cause excess mortality. And then, of course, economically and freedom, we've done way better. Now, listen. I was very concerned about COVID because I've got more elderly than just about anyone. I've got 4,000 long-term care facilities. I've got condos with seniors stuffed right. in them all across. So this was, and I'm a tourism state. So this was a huge existential threat to Florida. One of the other criticisms that's used against you is about your personality. It probably comes from people who don't know you very well right. because those who do, who I've spoken to, tell a different story. 
but you're being depicted in some of the national media as very intense, quite boring, um, charisma devoid. You know, someone reviewed your book uh, and said he would launch any charm offensive unarmed. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the knocks on the book. It's the number one book in America, right. far and away. I've sold more than any non-president in the history of the country in terms of the first week. So we've been doing pretty good. A lot of people like it. Does a hostile New York Times review help sales? Yes, with conservatives, <laughs> of course it does, yes. So here's the thing. I think, you know, th there is, uh, these are people who are in the political class, journalist class, politicians, and like D.C. in particular, mm -hmm. They get mad. I don't do the cocktail parties. I don't like rubbing elbows with other people. I like doing my job and then spending time with my family. That's just what I do. A lot of the people that are criticizing, you know, they would say, oh, he doesn't do well with, with, with donors. He doesn't glad hand with them. And yet I raise more money than any non-presidential candidate in the history of America. Are you kidding me? So we tend to do, we, we, we do well. But I do think that, you know, I deal better with regular people than I do with some of the people in the political class. Your book, you start with a quote from Sir Winston Churchill, the greatest of all Britons, um, certainly as far as I'm concerned. And it's about courage. And it says, courage is rightly considered the foremost of virtues, for upon it all others depend. Why did you choose that as the quote to kind of set up the book? Because I think what, we, what I've been called upon to do as governor is make the right decisions when it wasn't easy. I've got to do what's right, and I've got to stick by that, and I've got to be willing to take the arrows. And I think we need more of that in terms of our leaders now. Is Churchill a hero of yours? Absolutely. Why? Well, he saw the danger very, very early on. He spoke out, uh, and he rallied Britain in a very difficult time. And I think he was just very inspirational. He was a strong leader, of course, but he had a way with words. I mean, how you say these things to really stir people's patriotism, emotions, I think is something that, um, that I've always admired. You've achieved a lot in Florida, and you had this thumping win. One and a half million more people voted for you the second time round as governor. An amazing validation of what you've been doing. Could you do that nationally? I think you could. I think one of the things that was interesting about my election is the voters in Florida overwhelmingly thought the country was on the wrong track, but they thought Florida was on the right track. Right. We're very tough on crime. Uh, the policies in Washington are, are to be more weak on crime. You know, we believe in, in steward, good stewards of the environment, but I don't want to control everyone's behavior with some of the stuff that's going on. And we have really fought against the woke ideology. What I want to know is where did this come from? So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. I know your parents, your father was a Nielsen TV engineer yeah. for TV ratings. Because back then you had to put the box on the television right. sets. And he was physically doing yeah. that. And your mom was a, a nurse. nurse. And they still live in Dunedin, I think, in, in Dunedin, Florida. Dunedin, Florida. Dunedin. Founded by Scots. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, tell me about them and about the influence they've had on you. So my father was born, is from western Pennsylvania in a town called Aliquippa. That's a steel town. His father worked in the steel mills. My mother's from Youngstown, Ohio, another steel town. So this is blue-collar, gritty, uh, religious, patriotic. My household values really reflected that working-class upbringing. And basically what I think instilled in me is, you know, I love the country, trusted God, but just really believed you don't get anything handed to you in this life. The other question I do is look in the mirror every day and think, am I about to do something my mother will either like or dislike? There you go. Do you have that same yeah, absolutely. guiding principle? Absolutely. You did a press conference this morning and you were responding to the reports, rumors of Donald Trump potentially being indicted. And you gave an interesting response, very sort of supportive of him in a way by saying 
Yeah, you know, I think what's happening there is outrageous. It's political posturing by this DN and so on in New York, and they should be focused on more important things. But you also repeated twice you didn't have any knowledge of hush money being paid to porn stars. Was I right to feel that there was a slightly censorious tone to that, that that kind of thing is just not anything you would ever get involved with? Well, I think it's, there's a lot of speculation about what the underlying conduct is. That is purported to be it. And, you know, the reality is that's just outside my wheelhouse. I mean, that's just not something that I can speak to. So, uh, you know, I hope it doesn't come to where you end up seeing this going forward. I mean, look, if you are a very strident prosecutor, and this guy's on the left, and you're not prosecuting a lot of crimes, Manhattan's gotten uh, less safe, you're going to go after somebody on the other side for some novel offense uh, that just does not inspire confidence, and people see that as weaponizing the justice system. So, so I think it's fundamentally wrong to do that. And um, you know, I just made it be known. But who, you know, we'll see. Maybe it won't come to that. I mean, I, we haven't seen anything firm yet. Does personal conduct in any leader politically in America does it matter how you behave? as a leader? I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, what a leader, you really want to look to people like our founding fathers, like what type of character, it's not saying that you don't ever make a mistake in your personal life, but I think what type of character are you bringing? So somebody who really set the standard is George Washington, because he always put the republic over his own personal interests. When we won the American Revolution, Washington surrendered his sword. George III said, well, if he surrenders his sword. Can you not intrude into private <laughs> grief? Without him, we could have had King Piers. That's right. By now. But George III said, he's the greatest man in the world if he gives up power. And so I think the personal is more about how you handle your public duties and, and the kind of character that you bring for, to that endeavor. How important is truth to you? We live in a world where people talk about my truth, as if somehow you can create your own version of the truth. To me, facts are facts. The truth is what it is. It's the truth. People feel, whether it's been in the US or the UK with Boris Johnson, they feel like there's been a departure from truth being an important factor of leadership. A hundred percent. I mean, look, look, tr truth is essential. We have to agree that there's a certain reality to the world we live in. And if we can just create our own facts, then we're never gonna be able to agree on anything or never really be able to do policy in a way that makes sense. And so, yes, it's not your truth or my truth, it's the truth. You went to Yale and Harvard. Um, it was described as a blue collar kid from Tampa among the communist millionaires. <laughs> you said you were the only person to leave either of those places more conservative than you started. I think so. I mean, you know, I wasn't political when I got there, because where I came from, I didn't know if you were Republican, Democrat. When I got there, you, know, you had a lot of militant leftism. One of Yale's mottos is for God, for country, for Yale. But you get in the classroom, no way. I mean, it was very anti-religion, particularly Christianity, and very anti-Americanism, and really adopting a lot of the left-wing uh, mantras of the day. And I kind of rebelled against that, because I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I'm proud to be an American. Uh, I wouldn't be here if I, if in any other country, perhaps. And so this is something that, that I rejected. And then by the time I got to, to Harvard, I was already set. They weren't going to change me. It's, what's extraordinary is to watch the way campus, campus sort of ideology has gone. I mean, if it was bad then, it's immeasurably 
worse now. This Way woke worse. ideology has got a grip not just in America, but in the UK and around the world. It's not good for them because when they get into the real world, their assumptions have never been questioned. Mm. You should want your assumptions questioned. A university is about pursuing truth. It's about rigor and academic integrity and giving people the foundation so they can think for themselves and be citizens of the Republic, not to impose ideology. We want there to be free speech on campus. We want the professors to come from a wide variety of viewpoints. You can't have every professor having the same leftist dogma in the class. That's mm. not good education. Right. I mean, I lost a job because I disbelieved Meghan Markle. There you her, go. With her claims of racism against the royal family. I said, I don't believe it. So I had to leave my job. <laughs> I mean, it was completely insane. When you think about it, yeah. now I'd be fired for believing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right? That's true. I mean, it's true. Um, when you Although, my, I'll tell you, though, my book beat Prince. You know, his, his book had come out earlier, number one, and then when I became number you one, off, I, I was higher than Prince Harry. We're all very grateful. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of those two? Do you have a view of them? I, I don't. I mean, you know, I think that um, I really respected the queen. I mean, I mm. think she was uh, really elegant, and I think her stoicism, and, and I think it was really good. You know, as the, the younger generations, it's a little bit more mixed. I mean, that's just the reality. Are they annoying? I think for some they are. I mean, look, I I'm not involved in that, Malou. <laughs> I just kind of focus on, but I think for some Americans they can be. More from Governor DeSantis after the break. You had a choice when you left uh, Harvard, which was to take big money and go into relatively easier work, I guess, than what you chose to do. But instead you wanted to serve in the Navy. That's a big moment for you that decision. Why did you decide to do that? A lot of that was, you know, in the wake of 9-11. Uh, the world had changed. You know, I was growing up in like the 90s in high school and then in college, graduated before 9-11. Our country didn't have a care in the world. The Cold War was over, there was prosperity, and people weren't even thinking of that. And then when the towers fell, it just, it changed uh, my outlook. And I know we didn't have a draft or any of that, but I was like, look, you know, I should be willing to, to, to help out here and I'll have time to do other things in my life. And so, so we ended up volunteering, we did the Navy. And at that time, I didn't know what I was in store for, but I ended up doing a lot of stuff around the country and around the world, including uh, being in Iraq. And it was really, really valuable experience. I mean, when you, when you wear the cloth of your country, that's meaningful service. And the people that you meet along the way are great, uh, but there's just a lot, you know, Jack Kennedy said, uh, people can lo look back on their life with a great deal of satisfaction and say, I served in the US Navy, and I agree with them. Where were you on 9-11? You know, I was, um, uh, I think I had just graduated college and was kind of not a care in the world, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, it happened. And so I had already been either accepted or planning on going to law school, and that's when I decided to start looking into some other, other uh, career choices. That moment was a pivotal moment in modern American history in many ways, unleashed a whole series of consequences. Would you have done things any differently if you'd been running America at the time? Obviously, the, it, we're 20 years on from yeah. the Iraq war, for example, which many viewed as an illegal conflict potentially, but certainly one that created a lot of turmoil, the rise of ISIS and so on. Would you have invaded Iraq? So I think in hindsight, it's very easy to make these of things. Course. So clearly we had to go to Afghanistan, knock off the Taliban, and, and, and decimate Al-Qaeda. I would not have stayed in Afghanistan for what we did. I mean, the idea that we were going to turn that into a democracy, it's just a different culture. And they're, they're organized differently. And then I think in Iraq, what I saw there was, you know, you said democracy when Saddam was removed. 
These are people cozying up with the Iranians. And so we now have a situation where Iraq is basically an Iranian satellite, and Iran has probably been our most significant adversary, certainly in that region, you know, since the Shah fell. So in hindsight, I mean, I, I honor everybody's service because I think they did a, a lot of great things, but in hindsight, has the Middle East gotten better as a result of that? I think Iran's gotten stronger as a result of that conflict. You spent some time at Guantanamo Bay, obviously a very contentious uh, entity in many ways. Barack Obama campaigned in 08-09 to close it and didn't, it's still open today. Clearly a lot of very bad people went there, but we now know there were some who were detained for over a decade and were innocent people. You were there in a legal capacity. Did you have any qualms about what was going on there, about holding people that long without trial? Well, I think that there should have been military commissions. I did support that. Um, but what I saw, because the, you know, there was a media there about they were being mistreated in Gitmo, what I saw was basically a professionally run prison. And there was different kind of categories. So the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's gonna be in like a maximum security. Some of these other guys were like open air, play soccer all day, who were viewed as less of a, a threat. But what they're trying to figure out is, okay, if we release this person back to Afghanistan, are they going to engage in terrorism against? And that's hard to know definitively. So I think they tended to err on the side uh, of caution. Now, I will say these detainees would all say, they all said they're Koran salesmen. Like every one of them was a Koran salesman. And that clearly wasn't the case either. But did you have any issues as a lawyer with people being held that long with, well, without look, any it's trial? A, but it's a, tough, it's a tough thing when you have... Uh, situation with terrorism and war because they're not a nation state and how they, they you can't try them I think in a civilian court so you really need military commissions I actually thought I was going to be involved in military commissions and they really just sputtered they didn't get off the ground they should have had those up mm. and running and it's some due process but it isn't what you would get in a civilian trial the Washington Post did a big deep dive on this today actually about what you did out there one of the things they said was that you authorized the use of force feeding that's some of the... True. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, any of the stuff uh, that people... Just to finish, said, force okay. feeding the detainees who were on hunger strike. Was that true? So I was a, I was a junior officer. I didn't have authority to authorize anything. Mm. There may have been a commander that would have done feeding if someone was going to die, but that was not something that I would have even had authority to do. So that's, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What did you learn? You then went to Fallujah in 2007. That was the year of the surge. Yep. More American troops died that year than in any year in, in, since World War II, I think. So really incredibly dangerous and, and a lot going on. You were there as a legal counsel to the commander of SEAL, Navy SEAL Team 1. Yep. Uh, and obviously the SEALs weren't as well known as they are, I, I guess, now. Um, but an incredibly demanding job, I would think, under a lot of pressure. What did you learn about yourself while you were doing that? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, we had folks all across Al Anbar province. So, like, the headquarters was Fallujah. We had Ramadi, Al-Assad, Haditha, Hit, all these places. And there were operations every night. And, you know, they tend to work at night. And so you're, you're, you're just crazy out one day after another after another for a six, six-and-a-half-month period. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, honestly, I, I kind of felt honored to, to be there because uh, these were some of our best people uh, that I was able to kind of hitch, hitch a wagon with, mm -hmm. and they were making a good difference. By the time we left, there were not Americans dying in Al-Anbar province anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, Al-Qaeda in Iraq had been crushed. 
the Anbar Awakening had happened, and most of the deaths at that point, probably 90%, were in the Shia areas with the Iranian-backed forces. So, so it was a successful deployment, not just our deployment, but the Marines and the Army who were there during that time. Did you come under any personal attack? Not anything there? special. I mean, you know, I would travel from different areas, but what they would do is, like if you fly in a helicopter, they would do pitch black at night so that they couldn't, you know, shoot it down with an RPG, but they would not go in the daytime. Still quite a, an unnerving experience. Well, you just don't know. I mean, because the thing is, we could defeat them on the battlefield without even blinking an eye, but that wasn't how they were fighting. They were fighting to try to say, if you're going convoying from Ramadi to, to Fallujah, we're going to try to blow up your convoy. And so it's just kind of like, okay, if the number's called, the number's called. I want to talk to you about another war, Ukraine. Uh, I was quite surprised, I'll be honest with you, by what you said last week about Ukraine, describing it as a territorial dispute. It's picked up a lot of blowback, as you know. Only surprised because of your military background and because you were on record as supporting helping Ukraine after the invasion of Crimea. Do you regret actually just using that one phrase? Well, I think that a, it's a been, territorial I, dispute. I think it's been, I think it's been, uh, you know, mischaracterized. Obviously, Russia invaded that. That was wrong. Mm. They invaded Crimea and took that in 2014. That was wrong. What I'm referring to is kind of where the fighting is going on now, mm. which is that western border or eastern border region, Donbas, and then Crimea. And you have a situation where Russia has had that. I don't think legitimately, but they've had. There's a lot of ethnic Russians there. So that's some difficult fighting. And so whatever, the conflict area, that's what I was referring to. And so it wasn't that I thought Russia had a right to that. And so if I should have made that more clear, I could have done it. But I think the larger point is, okay, Russia has not shown the ability to, to take over Ukraine, to, to, to topple the government, or certainly to threaten NATO. That's a good thing. They've been weakened. You now have the fighting in those areas. I just don't think that's a sufficient interest for us to escalate more involvement. I would not want to see, you know, American troops involved there. But the idea that I think somehow Russia was was justified, and that's nonsense. I mean, I was in Ukraine interviewing President Zelensky last summer. What I was struck by was the utter resolve of the people there, which I suspect would be exactly the same if somebody invaded any part of America, which was not to give Putin an inch not an inch. In fact, they wanted Crimea back. And I think they would, they would take issue with it being categorized. Yeah, as so kind of like I, say, I think they have the right to that territory. Mm -hmm. I just think that's the source of the conflict. It's in those regions, which there's likely going to continue to be a lot of conflict on that going forward. So if I could snap my fingers, I'd give it back to Ukraine 100%. But the reality is, what is America's involvement in terms of escalating with more weapons? And certainly, ground troops, I think, would be a mistake. So that was the point I was trying to make. But Russia was wrong to invade. They were wrong to take Crimea. What's your view of Putin? Look, I think he's got grand ambitions. I think he's hostile to the United States. But I think the thing that we've seen is he doesn't have the conventional capability to realize his ambitions. And so he's basically a gas station with a bunch of nuclear weapons. And so for us, one of the things we could be doing better is utilizing our own energy resources in the United States. We could be permitting natural gas pipelines mm -hmm. from Marshallis, doing a lot in, uh, in, in Alaska. That's where he gets all his power, and obviously he's influenced Europe uh, by, by having so much energy. So the way to hit Putin is to hit him with energy. But I do think you look back, all the defense analysts and me in the past, we overestimated his conventional capability. This has been a huge mm -hmm. blunder for him, uh, huge costs. And, uh, you know, we'll see what ends up happening with his longevity and, and, and power. But, but this, has been a, this has been a loss for them. There is a move now to hold him accountable for war crimes, bombing maternity hospitals and genocidal activity in parts of Ukraine, wiping out whole cities, Mariupol and others. 
Would you support that? I mean, I think he is a war criminal. This ICC, we have not uh, done that in the United States because we're concerned about our soldiers or mm. people uh, being brought under it. But I do think that, that he should be held accountable. How does it end the Ukraine war, do you think? That's the thing. I mean, I think it's, it's I think those regions and the border in Crimea, you know, I think are likely to, uh, uh, to, to be a stalemate for quite some time. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people will end up dying if that's the case. But I do not think it's going to end with Putin being victorious. I do not think the Ukrainian government is going to be toppled by him. And, and I think that's a good thing. One of the issues about it was, well, people were saying, OK, well, what happens if China decides to invade Taiwan, which may well happen in the next couple of years? If they do, is that also a, a, a territorial dispute? Yeah, so, so that yeah, the the, the the thing with territory is just that's where the fighting was. You know, there's not as fighting on the on the on the western side, and you have situations where there's ethnic Russians there, and it's just it's it's a, it's a messy situation. Mm. But Russia did not have a right to go in to Crimea or to go in in, in February of 2022, and and that's that should be clear. And if China did invade Taiwan? And Th you that would be aggression. Absolutely, it would be aggression. And Americans if they were should get involved in, in that? So I would say that Taiwan is a, is a strong ally of the United States. Um, I think that that's a, a critical interest. I think it's for us, but also for our key allies like Japan and South Korea. Mm -hmm. And I think overall, the number one issue that we face internationally is checking the, the growth and the rise of China. They're much more powerful, I think, than, than, Putin, uh, than, than Putin and Russia are. And they really represent the biggest threat that we've seen to, to our ability to, to, to lead since the Soviet Union. After the break, Governor DeSantis tells me how he proposed to his wife. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Would you ban TikTok? I would. I think so. Would you? I think so. I mean, I think from it's, everybody in America. I think I think it's a security risk. I think they are harvesting so much data uh, on our citizens. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of other apps and stuff mm -hmm. that are out there. And honestly, Pierce, I got young kids. I don't want our kids on some of this stuff. And on sex education in school, 
What is your clear position on that now? So what our, our position is basically, you know, we don't want to be injecting sexuality and things like gender ideology um, in particularly the, the younger grades. And you, know, you do have places around this country where they will have kindergartners say, okay, declare what your gender is or tell a student that they may have been born a boy, but maybe they're really a girl. That is totally inappropriate. I think these are things that parents should be taking the lead on as they deem appropriate, but that should not be imposed in the, in the school system. Did you ever think you'd be alive in a world where a six foot four inch former male swimmer could suddenly identify as female and start demolishing women born to female bodies in competitive swimming, for example? Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Penn. It just seems... After spending three years on the men's team... Unsuccessful. ...and then switching there, mm. and then you have the situation, you have that famous picture of, of the swimmer mm. within the, the three women, yeah. and they're, they're so much smaller. The runner-up on that was actually from Sarasota, and I did a proclamation from the state saying she was the rightful winner. She was the best women's 500-yard mm. freestyle swimmer. So it's taking away opportunities from uh, girls and women athletes. I, I completely agree. I think it's a mad debate. Talking of, of young girls, actually a young woman that you met on a golf range <laughs> many years ago. There you are, you're on a golf range, and you spy two things. One is there's a bucket of balls that you right. have, and there's this very beautiful woman who you didn't know, but she, she was called Casey. Turned out to be your wife. Yeah. You didn't know that. Now, she tells this story and says that actually she was looking over and eyeing with great covetousness your bucket of balls. Your version is that she was looking at you and eyeing you up. Have you reached an agreement about this? So I thought she was looking at me. I really <laughs> did. And, you know, we did have the balls. And so I used the balls as a way to start talking to her. But, you know, my view was like, look, I'm, what, what, what's the worst she can do? She not want to talk to me? I'm like, I am not letting this opportunity go. So we went over there. We started talking. We divvied up the balls, hit them. And then we went out after that. And kind of, kind of the rest is history. But I think, in fact... She was looking at the balls. <laughs> I do think I was wrong. When did you know this is the one for me? I mean, I would say, like, pretty early, I was like, this is different. And, um, you know, I made sure to, to court her. Of course, I got mobilized to go to California, mm -hmm. then Iraq. So we stayed together through all that. But I told myself, like, as soon as I get back from Iraq, I'm popping the question. And so we ended up doing that. And How did you me. do that? Oh, I took her to a nice little resort in Florida, and we kind of went out, and we were out on the balcony, and just kind of you know, dropped to the knee, and, you and did? asked Bended her. did? Bended knee? Oh, yeah, of course. So of you course. took the knee, Governor? Yeah, yeah, we did. That's <laughs> the only time I take a knee is for that one. So, and she... Uh, and, and you had a ring? Had a nice ring, and, and everything, everything was really good. And did, she... Did she hesitate? No, no. no. In, immediate yes. Immediate, yeah. Well, I think she, you know, she had let it be known that, that she was happy and that, that we were ready to go to the next level as well. So I don't think it was anything that was like a super shock, but, um, but it was good to get that, get that one in the win column. When she got cancer, um, she talked very movingly about this in a, in a campaign uh, commercial for when you ran for governor in, in 2022, but she talked very emotionally about it and gave a real, like, heartfelt assessment of you. And I don't want to, you know, bring your blushes here, but she said, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was facing the battle for my life. He was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off the ground when I literally couldn't stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. When you watched that, because I don't think you'd seen it before it went out, no. right? and you see your wife crying as she pays that kind of tribute to you, what did that make you feel? 
Well, look, you know, for sickness and in health, good times and bad. I mean, that, that's the job of a spouse. And I, I, to have her thank me publicly like that was, was very uh, heart, heartwarming. I know it touched a lot of people throughout the state of Florida. And you're right, I didn't know what she was going to say because she asked me, I want to go over this. I said, you know, don't worry about my filter. Don't listen to anyone else. You just speak from your heart. Mm. So she kicked everybody out of the room when she, when she filmed it, except the camera guy. And she just spoke from the heart. No script, no anything. And I think it told a lot of people about kind of what we've gone through as a family. You know, you never want to see anyone go through something like that. But there is something a little bit more poignant when you have a young mother that's fighting for her life with these young kids because no, none of these, no kid should lose a parent like that. And so that I think was a source of, of fight for her. It was a source of fight for me. And we just had such a great outpouring of support from the community that it, that it did lift her spirits. Did you fear that you may lose her? So it's interesting. You always have that fear, but I'm a data guy. I went and looked it up. I said, you're going to beat it. She's like, and she didn't necessarily want to hear that because she was so scared, just as anyone would be. But I'm like, I've looked at the data. I'm looking at the treatments. You know, you're going to be okay. So I really felt confident, and we, the, the doctors had a plan. I talked to doctors all around the country, and I didn't even tell them what the plan was. I was like, okay, what do you recommend? And they all said, do the things that we ended up doing. So I felt really, really comfortable. There was a big consensus from people all over the country that I talked to. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I absolutely thought she was going to beat it. What was the lowest moment, do you think? I think the chemotherapy. I mean, yeah. I, I think two. I think the beginning when we get the, because she went to the doctor, she felt something. The doctor cleared her. They did a, 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 a physical exam, said that you didn't have anything, don't worry. And like me, if a doctor said I'm okay, I would never think twice about it. She had a feeling that there was just something wrong. So she really fought to get a mammogram. And so a couple weeks later, we got it. I told her, I was like, you're fine. And then it came back. And so I think that was really, really difficult. Well, that's, a, that's a jolt moment. Isn't it really it? is, because it totally changes your life. It changes your family's trajectory. Everything all of a sudden is up for grabs. So I think that was you know, one of the most difficult and then just not knowing what to expect, especially before we mm. saw a physician and one of the cancer doctors, we had no idea really what we were dealing with, apart from my kind of side research that I'm pulling up stuff from like Mayo Clinic and researching. So then that was tough. And then I would say the chemotherapy, it just, it saps you. When she was declared cancer free, did she ring the bell? Did she? She did, a, yeah, yeah. Were you there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that moment for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. Well, I know you're a tough guy, Ron DeSantis. I but know. Standing there as your wife rings no, the cancer no. free we, bell. We had, we had a big hug. How did you celebrate? Actually, Guinness. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> really? We both really like Guinness. I, I mean, love Guinness. Um, it's just something. And when I remember we, we went to Ireland and Scotland years ago, and like just being in the pubs, being able to do it. It's, you know, they said that the, that, that the beer was, um, was all warm over there, but they actually have Guinness extra cold taps. Oh, no. So yeah. you'd get it. I mean, it's just fantastic. So you had a couple of pints of Guinness. That's right. No better way to do it. Huh? <laughs> there was an incredibly sad time in your life, which was the loss of your sister, um, Christina, who died in London. Um, it was reported she died of a pulmonary embolism. Is that, is that yep. what happened? And she was leading a great life. She just got engaged, I think, to a British guy. Her life was all ahead of her. And then, bang, it's all taken away. And she dies at the age of 30. What was that moment like for you and your family? Well, I think it was just, you know, it kind of was like a shattering experience, you know, partially because she was doing well, she was very happy. She was over there, and I remember my mom calling me. My wife and I were on our way back from church. It was like a Sunday after Sunday morning, and she said that, you know, Christina's in the hospital. She had a blood clot, 
And so I'm thinking like, is she okay? And she seemed to be stable. So she was in the hospital for a couple days and then had the embolism uh, and died in the hospital. And so I just didn't think that that was something that was even possible mm -hmm. at that point because I thought that she was stable. And so we were, I mean, you just feel like, you know, you have your sibling, you know, their, their future was robbed. And, um, you know, it's just something I wish I could get back. What did she make of, of you and what was happening with you? <laughs> I was the big brother, so we were 85, I was seven years apart, so we weren't necessarily ever in like the same school together or any of that, so I was kind of like a little bit rarefied air in some respects. She always looked up to me, um, and I think some of it was because I was doing things, she tried to measure up to me, and I told her, I was like, don't worry about that. I was like, you just be you and, and do, do what you can do, and you know, she was very successful, um, you know, once she got out of school, she got her master's and everything. So. Um, but you know, it just—it's—it's a—it's uh, a tough thing. I could, yeah, you're clearly feeling quite emotional thinking about it. Yeah. It's hard to think of a worse thing actually for a family, I think, than losing a sibling. I mean, I just think you know people have their whole lives ahead of them, mm. and when you're talking about that age, it's just—it's a big tragedy. Mm. Coming next, what Ron DeSantis really thinks of his big rival Donald Trump. Welcome back. This is that part of the interview where I had to ask him the burning question. Let's get to the question you're not going to answer. <laughs> Want to guess? I can't imagine what this is. <laughs> Let me ask it anyway, and you can, you can bat it away, because I'm not expecting you to, to announce now. But everybody's assuming you're going to announce reasonably soon you're going to run for President of the United States. Are you? So, so I haven't made a, a final decision on it. Uh, I've told people I've got a lot that I've got to do over the next few months in Florida. We're going to put a lot of points on the board, and then we'll see how the dust settles uh, after that. But I can tell you, we just have a lot of people that realize the country's not going in the right direction and believe that what we've been able to do in Florida, if we could apply that nationally, would kind of get America back on track and back on our foundations. And so I take that very seriously. It's humbling that people have come to me and, and, and asked me to do it or urge me to do it. Uh, so stay tuned. That sounds like almost a yes. <laughs> it's a stay tuned. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? Well, because, I mean, look, I, I've got a young family. I mean, I've got, I've got different, different uh, obligations, and it's not the easiest thing in the world uh, to, to, to go through. And I also want to make sure that, you know, I have a very clear rationale for doing what I'm doing. All I'm interested in doing is getting things done and accomplishing things. I don't need a title. I don't need fanfare. Uh, I just want to know that if I put my mind to this, if we ever did that and were successful, what could I do to make a difference? And, and that's what I have to have. Do you think you have what it takes to be president of the United States? Look, I think what it takes is to have a vision for the country, uh, have the ability to exercise leadership, mm -hmm. and being willing to stand in that fire when it gets really, really hot and, and not back down uh, under pressure. And I think I have all those things. You got a great endorsement uh, from someone. Ron DeSantis is a brilliant young leader, Yale and then Harvard <laughs> Law, who would make a great governor of Florida, which turned out to be true. He loves our country. He's a true fighter. I mean, there's a ringing endorsement from President Trump. Times change a little bit, I guess. You know, it is what it is. So. Yeah, I mean, but. he was a big fan. 
No, I mean, I think, and, and I think, you know, we had a good relationship as a congressman, I and mean, I think one of the reasons he got to know me is because I saw this Russia collusion thing as a farce from the beginning. Right. Very few people said that. We had a handful of us in Congress that were fighting back against that, uh, and so I would go out on TV and I would defend him uh, when it wasn't popular and when it was kind of politically risky, but I just thought it was the right thing to do, and, and I thought that he had good ideas for the country, so I wanted to do it. And then when I became governor, his last two years as president, I was governor my first two years, and we worked very well together. I mean, he, he had a place in Florida. He wasn't a resident yet, but he understood Florida and really worked well with us to, to, to serve our state. You made a fatal error in your relationship with What's that? Donald Trump. You got too popular. <laughs> well, I, I would say if you look at some of the, the change from that and all the way up, What's been the kind of the major thing that happened that's, that's changed his tune was my re-election victory. Right. I mean, that's just, that's kind of the mark. Well, because many of his picks in the midterms did badly, and you, who had been, you know, he, he was a mentor in many ways, I guess, early on, had this thumping victory. Uh, and I guess if you're him and you're desperate to get back to the White House, this was a bit of a nightmare that you were getting such validation in Florida. You know, my view, though, is like, look, we should want the country to do well, I want other Republicans to do well. Mm. I'm not, I, I want them to eclipse me. You know, we're setting a great standard in Florida, have everyone up their game. I want other governors to do, to do a great job. Which is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron, Ron de Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't. Uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I can't, uh, I don't know how to spell de Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me, you can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. At some stage, I mean, have you read um, Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein? I have not. Okay. It's a great book, and obviously it spawned several movies. Um, but there are prophetic words of warning from Dr. Waldman to Dr. Frankenstein. You have created a monster, and it will destroy you. And you're alluding to what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I you have know. seen the movie, though. It is a good movie. Well, you know so. what I'm talking about, Governor. <laughs> it's like where Dr. Frankenstein creates a monster and then loses control of the monster. And in the book, obviously, the monster ends up <laughs> killing him. Well, look, at the end of you the... You know the parallel I'm making. At the end of the day, um, you know, what's best for the country? And let's put the country first rather than worry about any personalities or any type of, of individual um, ambition. But you know... At the end of the day, I'm a vessel for the aspirations of the people I represent. It's really not about me. That's true, but you're up against somebody who definitely cares who gets the credit, who's desperate to want to win back the White House and prove that his theory that he had it wrong. Well, I'm true. not up against anybody, you know, quite yet. We're up well, against... Well, the, the polls basically have you two yeah. up here and everybody else down here. So if you did run... But the way I view it, though, but the way I view it, though, if I were to, to run, uh, I'm running against Biden. Like, we're competing mm. for the Republican, potentially. I get that. But ultimately, you know, the guy I'm going to focus on is Biden because I think, he's, I think he's failed the country. I think the country wants a change. I think they want a fresh start and a, and a new direction. And so we'll be very vocal about that. You think you could beat Biden? I think so. So you're running them? No, I didn't say that. I just said I think I could. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, if you look at Florida. Who would be harder to beat, Biden or Donald Trump? We're I don't know. Those are two different, two different but electorates. Two, I mean, if you do decide to run, I mean, let's, you know, we can pretend around the horses here, but if you do decide to run in the next few months, obviously it will then be you v. Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. People have been quite kind of scathing. They've said your house-trained Donald, your Diet Coke to his <laughs> full Coke, right? You've heard all this stuff. 
What are the differences between you? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID was, was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not gonna have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. You've not been sucked into responding to any of the taunts. Is that a deliberate strategy? I'm just not following it. I mean, I get taunted and I get attacked every day. I mean, you see some of that. I, it, to me, it's just kind of background noise. It's not important for me to be fighting with people on social media. Uh, it's not accomplishing anything for the people I represent. I just wanted to check your fingers for a moment. Because I've noticed a very slimmed down Ron DeSantis. <laughs> You've lost a lot of weight recently. Well, we're, you know, at the end of the day, it's like a New Year's resolution. Just get back in the swing of things. I have I'm the a, same thing. I'm a I'm a uh, athlete and a, and a military veteran, and so as governor, you can get caught up in a lot of other stuff. Apparently, no carbs and no dessert. So ba I think the sugar is the biggest mm. uh, issue because, like, basically, if you do sugar, your body burns sugar. If you don't, it burns fat. And so, if you're working out and just eating halfway decent, I'm doing yeah, exactly do the same thing, by the way, since Christmas. Okay. So, we're all missed together. There you go. You're probably doing a bit better than me. <laughs> but I, I was asking about your fingers because of this, I mean, scandal which broke last week that you apparently were eating chocolate pudding with three fingers. Now, where did, was that it's, anonymous sources or something? It was a very serious allegation. In <laughs> fact, I congratulated the journalist who broke it on the new Watergate. <laughs> but I have to put it to you, Governor, have you ever eaten a chocolate pudding with three fingers? I don't remember ever doing that. <laughs> I'm telling you, maybe when I was a kid, but it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of people when, you're, when they go at you, sometimes they have like really good ammunition, like you're a crook, you did this, you did that. For me, they're talking about pudding? Like, is that really the best you got? Okay, bring it on. Governor, it's been great to meet you yeah. and to get under the skin a bit of Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, who knows, next few months, maybe we'll come and interview again when you're running for president. Well, I'm glad you came to Tallahassee. I know it's your first time and uh, we welcome you to Florida's uh, historic capital. Next time you're in St. Andrews in Scotland? We got to do that. Let's I have mean, a little... If I can get out there, we got to do that. little battle on the old course. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. England v. America. <laughs> the best man win. You've got local knowledge, it'll, though. It'll I've only played it once. Payback for George III. There you go. Good to meet right, you. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Well, that's it from me here in Tallahassee, Florida. A very revealing interview there with a pretty remarkable politician. But those two big questions remain for Ron DeSantis. Will he run for president? And if he does... Can he win? Well, that's all. So good night, and remember, keep it uncensored. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.